Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. For days, I have seen nothing but the most terrible things that can be painted from a human mind. Franz Marc, German artist killed at Verdun. March 4th, 1916. All right. Welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode 4. Metastasis. Battle Over Done podcast is now available on Stitcher and on Facebook. For Stitcher, just log on to stitcher.com and look for the Battle Over Done podcast or click through the link provided on this podcast website, battleoverdonepodcast.com. There's a link there that'll take you right to Stitcher. And on the Facebook, like one of my best friends calls it, just look up Battle Over Done podcast page, and you'll be there. So check them out. Pretty soon, we're going to be everywhere. All right. So last time, we covered the opening days of the Battle of Verdun. We talked about how the Germans pressed their attacks on the beleaguered French army and broke through the lines on February 24th, causing panic and chaos for the French side. Then things got even worse when Fort Douaumont fell to the Germans without a fight on February 25th. General Hare, the overwhelmed old artillery general commanding the French forces at Verdun, was already calling for the total evacuation of the right bank of the Verdun salient. General Joffre, annoyed that this sideshow at Verdun was threatening his planned magnum opus for 1916 at the Somme, sent the little fighting friar, General de Castelnau, up to see what was going on. De Castelnau immediately ordered the French Second Army, then in reserves and readily available, to move to Verdun and take over command of the battle. He also informed General Hare that no more ground was to be given up. Verdun was to be held. So now both the French and Germans were fully committed to the coming struggle for Verdun. So on February 26th, the command group of the French Second Army arrived at Verdun, setting up shop at Suilly Village along the main supply route leading into the town. Commanding the Second Army was one General Philippe Pétain, with the disgraced hair relegated to a quickly fading quote-unquote advisor position Pétain now took over the battle. The effect of de Castelnau's orders and Pétain's takeover were immediate. French resistance stiffened. Now that he's in charge, now we can talk about 
General Henri Philippe Benoni Omer Pétain. You simply cannot talk about Les Batailles de Verdun without talking about General Pétain. And as I'm sure you've noticed, since we're into the details here, we're going to talk about him for, for a little bit. Philippe Pétain. He confused the hell out of his countrymen by using his second given name, which was a practice generally not followed by Frenchmen. Was and remains a controversial figure in France, even today. And this comes not from his days as a celebrated general of World War I, but from his days as the figurehead for the Nazi puppet state of Vichy France during World War II. Of Pétain and Vichy France, I know woefully little at this stage, but those events don't relate to our podcasts, so I get off pretty scot-free on that one. And anyway, it was at Verdun that Pétain's name would soar to meteoric heights. When word went out on February 24th that Pétain had been appointed the commander of the French forces at Verdun, his second army was in reserves at Noailles, France. Pétain himself was in a hotel room in Paris with his longtime mistress doing, well, what do you think he was doing? Or at least he was trying to, till his faithful staff captain found him and told him about the new job he'd just been appointed to. But Philippe, the lover man, said to his man, Captain Serigny, basically, you know, Verdun will hold until morning. There are other duties I must attend to just now. So, this is one of the coolest things in, in reading up on history and, and really getting to know these details. That this, these folks aren't just one-dimensional you know, military leaders from history. They're, they're real people with, with real needs, man. As you can see with General Pétain. Philippe Pétain was born in 1856 in Cachy-la-Tour, a small town in northwestern France that would find itself near the Western Front during World War I. He was too young to fight in the Franco-Prussian War, but was so taken up with war stories from a great-uncle who'd fought in Napoleon's armies that he'd decided on the military as a career. In the post Franco-Prussian War French Army, Pétain's career was a slow one, to the point where shortly before the outbreak of the war in 1914, he was pretty much setting himself up for retirement and a life of farming, something he loved to do in his off time. So World War I found Philippe Pétain an old colonel at the very end of his career. The main reason that Pétain's career was so slow was that he was an outspoken critic of the whole offensive à outrance school of military thought. As a military man, he was also contemptuous of the whole Third Republic and its politicians. So let, let's get into both of these reasons real quick. One ties in heavily with how the Battle of Verdun would be fought, and the, the other one just adds more character to the figure of Pétain. Pétain was a contrarian to the whole guts and glory school movement 
that dominated the French army after 1871. Pétain studied the 1899-1902 Boer War and the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 carefully, and he determined that the whole Elan thing was just utter BS. These modern and savage little wars showed Pétain that rifles and machine guns in the defense could break up even the best infantry attacks. He also came to grasp the devastating potential of modern artillery, which most other officers of his time dismissed before 1914. Pétain had an acid tongue towards the all-out infantry charges, but since he was a low-born peasant and caustic commentator, he had little political influence within and without the French army. When he finally did get a posting to the École de Guerre in 1906, though, he did most certainly go against the grain. I mean, this, this was not a man who, who held back. He would tell you what he thought. And this was where his signature mottos of firepower kills and cannon conquers, infantry occupies, came to be known. He had a few disciples, but not many. You know, most young officers of the day went for the guts and glory team. It's pretty understandable that they're the more, uh, more glamorous side. One young officer who became a Pétain disciple was a certain man named Charles de Gaulle, who would go on to be another controversial 20th century French military political figure. General Pétain, as a simple and career soldier, was a guy who had no time for politicians. During the war, he would do his best to keep them away from him, frequently resorting to brutal comments that left no doubt as to who was being insulted. Once, he even told Raymond Poincaré, who was, you know, like the president of France, that of all people, you should know that France is neither led nor governed. So, do you see why promotion might be a little bit of a problem with this guy? To politicians, he was rude. One of my favorite comments about Beethoven comes from a parliamentary deputy who visited the Western Front in 1917. And he said, Beethoven is a bastard. Pretty much sums it up, I guess. But to most everyone else, he was, he was hardly better. Pétain was a distant, very formal man to the officers around him. In fact, he was downright terrifying to people who didn't know him. And he cut a mean figure with his appearance and attitude. Pétain was tall, powerfully built, and with ice blue eyes. He was very frequently compared to a Roman from ancient times. His long handlebar mustache in the style of the, of the era, to me, just cemented his badassness. At public occasions, no one dared talk to Pétain first, except those who already knew him. But for all of his personal coldness to other officers, he was genuinely caring for the common soldiers under his command. I mean, he, he didn't go to the trenches and kiss their butts. He was a father figure to them. He took care of them, made sure that they were well-fed and well-supported. 
And the soldiers understood that. And unlike other military leaders, Pétain stayed close to the front so that he could be seen by his men. And this was why he did, uh, this is why he set up his HQ at Suili Village. He visited his wounded men regularly, something very few of his contemporaries would do. Pétain didn't shy away from the horrific wounds. He knew what cannons and infantry, rifles, and machine guns caused. He saw it. So Pétain started the war as a colonel in command of the 33rd Infantry Regiment. Within weeks of the beginning of combat on the Western Front, he was in charge of the 6th Infantry Division. By spring of 1915, he was in command of an infantry corps that distinguished itself and Pétain by almost wrenching the famous Vimy Ridge from the Germans. Pétain put his theories to work, ensuring his attacks were thoroughly planned and well-supplied. His bombardments blasted German trenches so his troops could take them in bite-and-hold-style operations. In the fall of 1915, his attack during the French push in the Champagne region failed when his artillery barrage went on just a little too long and he lost the element of surprise. But he redeemed himself in his Poilu's eyes by ending any further attacks before they turned into the usual slaughter. The Biffins under Pétain's command loved him, knowing that if the general called for an attack, there was probably a good reason for it. Coming back now to the constant artillery pounding and rumbling of the Verdun gristmill, Pétain didn't get the job of commanding the defenses because his military philosophy was uniquely suited to the developing battle. He got the job because he was simply available. But for the French, the truth was that fate really couldn't have found a better guy for this battle. It was like Pétain had been waiting his whole life to fight the Battle of Verdun. He came in all business, true Pétain style. First thing he did once his HQ was set up was to begin delineating boundaries on a map for the confused and chaotic jumble of units out there on the battlefield. He was re-establishing order. And as excerpted in Ian Osby's book, The Road to Verdun, as he drew his sectors on a map, he called out the names of his unit commanders. Basilaire, here. Guillaumat, here. Balfourier, here. Duchesne, here. After that, he drew a line on the map, going from Hill 304 and Mortom on the left bank to Forts Dumont and Vaux on the right bank. This line was to be the line of resistance, all capitals. Line of resistance. On this line, the French army would fight and hold. Not many others knew it, but he also drew another line on the map behind the line of resistance. This line connected the ring of forts closer to Verdun. Belleville, Souville, Tavannes, and Moulinville. This was the line of panic. If the Germans broke through, the apocalypse would take place on this second line. With the roar of shells just a few kilometers north and the ground rumbling under his feet, Pétain issued his first order to the Poilus struggling desperately 
and the shell-torn hills and ravines north of Verdun. Hold. France has her eyes on you. Verdun didn't want pointless counterattacks launched for the sake of counterattacking. The lives of his soldiers were to be spared whenever possible. To the large unit commanders, he ordered in a stern but almost paternal way, conserve your strength. The counteroffensive will follow. McDonald was setting things straight, but huge gaps remained in the French line. On the German side, the crown prince, the playboy player who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, recognized the opportunity for what it was. For all the odds stacked against him, Little Willie knew his business as an army commander. He called on General von Falkenhayn, the commander of German forces on the Western Front, to bring up reserve troops in order to exploit these gaps while they were still there. Now was the moment for the German Fifth Army to smash through and take Verdun just like he had ordered his soldiers. But Crown Prince's Fifth Army at this point, had only one regiment of men in reserve. In this fight, those numbers just weren't even enough. Crown Prince needed division-sized elements to make that breakthrough work. Man, you, regiments ain't gonna cut it. Like, I need divisions to make this thing work, man. And this is where the disparity in the orders issued by the Crown Prince to his Fifth Army and the orders issued by on Falkenhayn to the crown prince, raised its ugly head and showed just how dangerous von Falkenhayn's lack of clarity was. On the request for reserves to be moved forward, von Falkenhayn refused. Reserve units opposite the British and the Somme area stayed where they were, as usual, in fearful anticipation of an Allied counterattack. Two other divisions sat waiting two days' march away at Metz. But von Falkenhayn wouldn't release these units either. He wanted the French completely in his trap so that he could start bleeding them out as planned. Even if he had released those two divisions at Metz to the Crown Prince, they were too far away to exploit any breakthrough. And this was the golden opportunity that would not present itself again. If the holes torn in the French Army's right bank defenses had been used for a push through to the open ground beyond the hills, who knows what that could have done for the course of the war and for the course of Germany's fortunes in it. Von Falkenhayn's obstinacy and adherence to his hazy plans gave just enough time for the French to throw more poilus into the line and mind those gaps. French resistance hardened in a day to the point where on February 27th, the Germans slammed into a wall. Nowhere on the front line were any advances made that day. No gains of shell-created ground. Nothing. Part of the reason for the hardening resistance was that with General Pétain in charge on the French side, there came a new focus on the performance of French artillery. Pétain stressed that the French artillery should be and should be seen as active and supporting the stranded troops in the hellish battlefield. 
both for the effects of killing the enemy and to shore up the infantry's weakening morale. French gunners had taken as awful a beating as the Poilus up in the line. But within hours of Pétain's takeover, surviving French artillery was organized into a more coherent defense. And the Germans noticed right away because French guns positioned on the left bank of the salient swung right and opened fire. German troops on the right bank were caught in the open time and again by French guns targeting their exposed right flanks. Whole German units would be massacred just trying to move through the battlefield. French gunners got proactive too and went searching for targets, not just pounding the ones presented to them. One German unit lost more men sitting in the woods than it did when it finally pushed off for an assault. Verdun was an artillery battle, pitting flesh and bone up against iron and steel. It was the mill on the Meuse. Artillery was an article of faith for Pétain. Again, cannon conquers, infantry occupies, was one of his favorite anti-conformist maxims. While it went against the grain of the Offensiva Outrance school of thought, in the battlefields of the First World War, cannon conquers, infantry occupies, was also true. Desperate fighting now developed around Dumont village, just to the northwest of the fort itself. The fury of the battle now concentrated itself on this little hamlet. The Germans attacked furiously and tried to take it. 24th Brandenburgers, still stoked from just having taken the mighty Fort Douaumont and with supporting machine gun fire coming from Fort Douaumont itself, tore at the French defenders in the village. French 95th Infantry, holding the village of Douaumont, wiped out the Brandenburgers only too gladly. And the Brandenburgers passed on into the growing list of units that fought at Verdun. The Germans now brought in 420 millimeter guns to level the village. These guns fired one ton shells against the troops holding the ruins. 95th Infantry itself was then destroyed and replaced by Pétain's old regiment, the 33rd Infantry. And the 33rd, with its machine guns, laid a carpet of gray before the rubble of Dumont village, even as it now suffered the same pounding from the Germans. Gut get gut. Then on February 28th, Mother Nature came in and gave the French an assist for the second time that month. Temperatures went above freezing. The ground that had been churned up for a solid week now by artillery turned to mud. Crown Prince's men were unable to move their guns forward over the destroyed landscape to support their infantry. The Germans had advanced four miles, in some areas even up to six miles, putting forward German positions at the very limit of their artillery's ranges. It was becoming a not uncommon experience for the Germans to also get shelled by their own guns, many of which, after a week of continuous fighting, saw their barrels worn out and their performance severely affected. Essentially, 
by the end of February 28th, all German attacks on the right bank of the Verdun salient stalled in the face of stiffened French defense. This was the point where the Crown Prince's drive on Verdun was really pretty much finished. Or it should have been. The spike in temperatures on February 28th also hampered delivery of supplies to the French via La Route, the one road left open from Bar-le-Duc to Verdun. La Route was the key to Pétain's now gelling strategy for the battle. The road between Bar-le-Duc and Verdun was the one road left open to the French. All other roads had either been seized by the Germans or were under German bombardment. Although this road had been widened just a short time before the battle began, it was still wholly inadequate for the lifeline Pétain would now have it become. Through this one road, the French army would now send all of its supplies by trucks that were culled from every corner of France to support a massive supply effort for the battle. To fight his battle, Pétain would need a continuous river of ammunition, food, and men flooding into the battlefield. There would soon be a long snake of trucks leading into and out of Verdun. If a truck broke down, it would literally be tipped over into the roadside ditches. There was no time to lose on one truck. A division of territorial soldiers would be assigned to the road with shovels, throwing gravel on the road day and night in order to keep it stable. La Route would be the main artery that kept the French alive. After the war, it would be called La Voie Sacrée, the Sacred Way. Thousands of soldiers would march north along it, heading towards the battle. Pétain wanted a continuous flow of French soldiers into the battle. Units would ideally be relieved after eight days at the front before they lost all effective combat capability. Under a system called the Noria, after a millwheel design. During the coming weeks, General Joffre would butt heads with Pétain constantly over the incessant call for more men for Verdun. On the other side of La Route, trudging south, would be much thinner lines of hollow-eyed, mud-covered, and wasted men. The survivors, those few, would make it out alive and physically whole. With the fall of Fort Douaumont and General Pétain's taking command of French efforts, the first part of the Battle of Verdun was over. By February 28th, the Germans had failed to take Verdun as envisioned by the Crown Prince's battle plans, showing that even the Germans, with their tactical and technical innovations, were also unable to break the trench deadlock on the Western Front. The French had taken some staggering blows, but were now back in the ring and fighting with a new determination and not a little desperation. To General von Falkenhayn, though, the battle was going how he wanted it to. The French army was now resolutely determined to hold Verdun, and they were throwing men recklessly into the furnace to do so just like he had said they would. What 
von Falkenhayn either didn't realize or wasn't particularly bothered by was that to get the French to step into the trap, he'd put the German army out as bait. Now, both armies were in the trap. France was going to hold the line and work to recapture all lost ground. And Germany wasn't about to give up any ground it had just taken. By February 28th, the French had already taken some 24,000 casualties. Not unexpected, as attackers typically suffer higher than defenders, but nonetheless telling for Verdun. In the same time frame, the Germans had taken over 25,000 casualties. Germans now did a meeting of the minds to take stock of the situation and figure out what to do next. Crown Prince was not happy. French artillery on Côte 304 and Le Mortom were shredding 5th Army units on the right bank. On the right bank itself, Fort Vaux and its guns was putting the kibosh on any attempt to keep grinding forward. Crown Prince's army was now stuck in the mud and exposed and getting steadily shot to pieces. Von Falkenhayn listened to all of this coming from the crown prince and reacted with something akin to the following. Hmm, that sounds really rough. But hey dude, check this out. My unlimited submarine warfare in the Atlantic plan is going great. Crown Prince pressed on. He asked for permission to finally attack French trenches on the left bank of the River Meuse. He also asked that he be able to attack on the conditions that he would get the men he needed to make the attack. Unlike the French with their rotation system coming into place, the Germans kept their divisions in the front line until they were no longer combat effective and then backfilled them with replacements afterwards. Little Willie also supposedly got the go-ahead to call off any attack if German losses became too heavy. I say supposedly here because this sounds a little too much like someone padding their memoirs with the benefit of hindsight. It just doesn't sound plausible. For all his talk later of how he had always had a bad feeling about Verdun, Crown Prince didn't have that stomachache at this meeting. He agreed that Operation Gericht should go on. Von Falkenhayn agreed and gave the prince a whole new infantry corps with which to make his new attack. So the Germans now looked at the source of the French artillery problem, the hill on the left bank called Les Mortons. They would have to take that hill in order to be able to clear French forces on the right bank. Two words, mission creep. Even worse was that everyone knew this attack was coming. It had to be coming. You couldn't just attack one half of an enemy salient. You had to take the whole thing down. Already General Peyton's first question after he awoke every morning was, what's happening on the left bank? He knew the Germans would have to attack there. Sitting opposite the French and British forces and commanding an army group on the Somme sector, 
Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria noted in his journal around this time, I hear that at Verdun, the left bank of the Meuse is to be attacked now too. It should have been done at once. Now the moment of surprise is lost. But to the crown prince and his generals, they looked across the lines and said, Le Mort Homme is just two miles behind Franz's line. We just pushed forward six miles on the other side. Shouldn't be that big a problem to take this hill, right? We'll leave it right there for this week. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you folks again with the next episode. Your comments, questions, and reviews are welcome on the website, battleofverdunpodcast.com, through iTunes, through Stitcher, through Facebook, through everything. See you folks again soon. Take care.